2020 changed the trajectory of my life forever. I was 24, succeeding in a job that offered huge financial reward, yet I was unhappy and unfulfilled. My chronic illness, cystic fibrosis, had caused my lungs to bleed and it left me in a hospital bed. Now I left that job and created this podcast and I left that hospital bed to run marathons and prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we respond to them. On this show, we discuss the adversity that my guests and I face and how we overcome that adversity. This is a lot to talk about. G'day, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It is your boy, the captain of the ship, the man in charge, Bradley J. Driver. Of course, you can call me Brad. Here today with an incredible guest, a guest who has done so much for the community as a whole. So our guest today is the founder of the Shake It Up Foundation here in Australia, which is fighting and fueling the fight, I should say, against Parkinson's. He's actually a Parkinson's patient himself, which I'm looking forward to diving into his story, particularly the way that he's responding to that adversity today. He's also the founder and CEO of a company called Intelligent Robotics, which we're going to dive into that AI space and talk about robotics. And I know that's a a hot topic at the moment. So from your home, your car or wherever you are, give a very warm welcome to Mr. Clyde Campbell. How are you, mate? Fantastic. Mate, it's really interesting for me to, to see your story and to have heard about it over the course of the last month or so now. Your team reached out and you know, said you'd be keen to come on for a conversation. I just love what you're doing. I love what you're about. For me personally, I've grown up with cystic fibrosis. And so I understand what it's like to have something that at times can be out of your control in the way that it challenges you and the adversity that it serves you. But rather, I love the fact that you've responded to your challenges very positively. Talk to me about the early days of starting to understand that something in your body was changing and give us a bit of a picture on how Parkinson's comes about, because I don't know too much about how that comes on for someone. Well, I didn't know much about Parkinson's until I was diagnosed myself. Um, so, yeah, look, it came on very quickly for myself, which is quite unusual for most people. Most people take months, if not years, to get a diagnosis for Parkinson's. But I actually was got up to do a speech which as a CEO for a robotics company on a company planning day. Um, so you'd normally have them annually and take all our partners and uh, out. And uh, so there was hundred odd people in the room. I got up to do the opening address and the notes and my hands started to shake and I'm pretty comfortable in front of people. And so half the head's going tough it up. You must be nervous. And the other half the head's going, what the hell's happening here? Um, so it, I shook at different points in time during the day. Um, but what really surprised me is I got to the end of the day and went to take a beer off a waitress's tray. I took it in one hand and turned it into a washing machine. I couldn't hold it in one hand. And uh, yeah, that's very surprising. I'm not used to spilling beer. Mate, that that's wild because that's such a visceral reaction. Like most people experience a bit of a problem with their health and it might be something like they feel a little bit of fatigue or they feel a little out of breath or something slowly starts to tell them that there's something wrong. But to feel as though you're almost out of control of your body function, was that scary? Um, wasn't so much scary. It was knowing there was something out of the ordinary for it for myself. So I spoke to my wife at the time and said, Kaz, look, if I do fall over, um, tell the ambos this, this is what's happened during the day, but I don't want to leave the event because it's uh, our annual planning day and catching up with everyone. And there's a lot of fun to be had. 
Um, and it wasn't a major thing at that point in time, but it was just different and different as unusual for myself because I'm pretty comfortable in uh, my health. For sure. What were your first initial thoughts on like what could be causing this? I didn't really have much of a thought at all, but I knew I'm a great believer you take action. If there's something wrong, don't hide it. So mm -hmm. Monday morning, I went straight to the GP and I see the GP mostly with the kids, with different things that happen with illnesses and so on. And he looked at me and did a couple of basic tests and he said, Clyde, I'm going to have to refer you to a neurologist. And I just said, mate, he just hit me with what you think it is. Uh, and he, he didn't really want to share. Um, but uh, I said, mate, just tell me. And he said, look, Clyde, you look like you've got young onset Parkinson's. And that didn't really worry me until he got up to it's a neurodegenerative disease and, and there is no cure. So I was hitting a hit, hit and spin visit to the doctor thinking it's uh, something simple to be able to address. And uh, it turned out to be a whole lot more. How old were you at that time? Because Parkinson's, when, I feel like when you start to hear about people getting early onset Parkinson's, it's in their 50s, maybe 60s, and they know that there's going to be some challenges ahead. Yeah, I was 44 and bulletproof healthy. You know, I thought I was always good for 70 or 80 without any major medical issues because I do look after myself fitness-wise and so on. Um, but, yeah, it was a complete vault from the blue for myself. So what does it change? Because, you know, I can imagine that when you hear that and you know it's neurological, that affects a whole bunch of the body processes that we like, you know, likely take for granted every day. What did you know that that was going to change? And how do you, did you then handle that conversation with family? Because I can imagine that wouldn't be easy to address that. I know you've got three kids, you've got a lovely wife and it's not an easy conversation to have. Yeah, that's the, the important part for ourselves is we're really close as a family and um, we share everything. Uh, yeah, it's such a, it's a great opportunity. I suppose grown, I've grown up with a really strong family with mum and dad and we had five kids. Uh, we, we all got on really smashingly well. I've been a business partner with one of my brothers for since I was 18. So oh, we're wow. used to doing different stuff, but having close relationships. But it was different. Um, you know, after I got my diagnosis, I went to the neuro and um, he, he said, look, Clyde, the good news is you've got Parkinson's. And I said, mate, I'm a pretty positive lad, but I don't see anything positive about having Parkinson's. He said, well, your choices were motor neurone, a brain tumor or Parkinson's. I said, mate, I'm starting to feel the love. <laughs> <laughs> it's not as bad as what I thought. Um, yeah, well. There's the two things I promised myself um, when I pulled up at the neuro that day, and I, was one: could I accept it, or whatever he was going to tell me it was, because I didn't know what it was at that point in time. Uh, mm. And the second thing was: what was I going to do about it? So I could accept it, I tick that box, and uh, said, "Look, I don't like it. I'm going to go and get two more opinions um, to make sure I have got Parkinson's." Uh, but what I was going to do about it was crystal clear for me I was going to find a cure. Um, so that allowed me to turn the car on because I promised myself I can't turn the car on and leave until I decide those two things. I'm a great believer in strategy, but you've got to have action. Um, so that, that was, they were the key points for myself to, to get kicked off on our, our journey. Mate, I absolutely love that. I remember hearing, I watched something today, actually, an interview you done with maybe a current affair or 60 Minutes, um, one of those programs back in the day and and I, whatever one it was I know that the line that hit me and I couldn't forget was you said you know I had a decision to make was I going to be Clyde Campbell with Parkinson's or Clyde Campbell who did something about having Parkinson's and you know I'm paraphrasing there I hope I hit it word for word though and I remember just thinking what a bold line that is because that's at 
that action you talk about, you know, that's that decision to take it in your stride to know that you can't change it. It is what it is, accept it and move forward. I wonder though, that mindset is, is a profound mindset. I think that most people who face adversity or knowingly have to expect it at some point in their future, because we all face our challenges, would like to think that they'd have that sort of action oriented mindset. I wonder though, were you very similar to that before having to take this on board and knowing that you're going to have to move forward in spite of it? Or was this a, a decision and almost a change in that moment? No, it's something that's always been normal to me. I come from an engineering background, so we're used to problem solving um, and, and innovation-based work. We've had some massive problems to be able to solve uh, on projects that we've gone in for. We thought, yeah, this is it can't be too hard. And then you get further into the project and you find out it is pretty hard. Uh, and that's why people haven't been able to do it before. So problem solving is something that's been really key to me in the, in the past, but support's a key part as well. You did mention the family uh, there before. And I forgot to get back to you know, when I told the kids. Mm. So um, we sat down with the kids one night and said, look, um, I've got something to share. And uh, we, we have our meet catch-ups every every week um with the family um and then then joshy just said daddy you okay do you need a help and i said mate I, i'm okay but I'll, I'll let you know when i need a help um zoe didn't say anything and she's a really deep thinker um and phoebe's was only three at the time so she was just going along with what the other two were but zoe's come back to me two weeks later with uh, tears running down her face and said daddy you're gonna die so she got parkinson's disease she forgot the first word and she got the second word. And then that to her was, you're not going to be here. Um, so after we settled that down and said, look, I'm, I'm going to be here to annoy you for a fair bit longer. Um, they, they've been part of the journey. They've come on different presentations with me. They give me plenty of stick about a whole lot of different things. And uh, they're, they're good part of the family. I think it's really important what you mentioned here, Clyde, because I know that personally, like what I have is very different to Parkinson's, right? Like cystic fibrosis for me is something that affects my, my digestive system, my respiratory system, my endocrine system, but I have it pretty under control. There have been times though, where my health has been tested. And I was always very conscious of the fact that my parents were so positive through my childhood to make sure that I felt really calm and really in control of my condition. And so when I started facing challenges in my adulthood, I was very conscious of how I reacted and responded because I never want them to fit, never wanted them to feel as though I was truly tested or out of control. Yeah. And so I was very aware of my surrounds and how my energy made them feel. Have you had to be so vigilant about that? You know, being a dad, being a husband, being generally, as you can tell, and you know, if someone can't tell by now, you're an upbeat guy. You know what I mean? Like you give off great energy. Like you, you seem like the kind of guy that if you've got a problem, go to Clyde. He'll make you feel better about it. Yeah, you, but you go to Clyde, but he, we, we solve it as a team. And that's yeah. a key part. You, you can't solve all the problems yourself. Yeah, yes, you need to take responsibility for things. But if you think as a team, man, it makes it a whole lot easier. And you have great people around you. You can do a hell of a great things happen. Where, where were you for, and I love that point, by the way, where were your first, I guess your first doses of inspiration from in the Parkinson's field? Because 
you know, to make a bold statement, like I'm going to find a cure, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do something about this, not just for myself, but for the population of people who fight this disease. Mate, next oh, time I'm going to wish for something a little bit simpler too. Yeah, bloody oath. <laughs> bloody oath. Like where, where did you look around to see who was leading the field in, in the research, who was living with the condition and, you know, and having really positive progress, like, who were you looking to for inspiration during that time? Yeah, I, I had a good look around Australia for medical research and I found some very good researchers, all of them, in my opinion, underfunded. But if we did fund them at a higher level, probably under strategically directed in my view of the world, whether that's true or not. Um, but um, that then I we, we do a lot of work nationally as well as globally in our robotics business. I was doing a project over in in US at the time uh, and uh, I went and saw Michael J. Fox Foundation and I just come away from those guys going, they, they're the guys that can help us. They just were no froth and bubble. It was all about how to find ways to slow, stop and cure Parkinson's. Um, but what I was what wanting from them was to be able to build a partnership in Australia because I'm a great believer, don't do things twice. You know, if someone's already doing it well, go and find out what they're doing and partner with them. Mm. Um, so they were very polite in what they were saying and it went on for months. Um, and uh, their CEO finally at the end of 12 months said, Clyde, you've got my support, but you're going to have to get the support of the board. Um, and so yeah, that that was the key part. You know, Michael J. Fox is just a genuinely nice guy. What you see on telly is what you see in real life. And that's not usual in that sort of public person mm. uh, to a great, greater degree. But, mate, he's just a genuinely nice guy um, and, and inspirational as to the way he thinks about his Parkinson's. We don't all, don't all agree. He, he, early days, he always used to say Parkinson's the best thing that happened. I think Parkinson's sucks. Um, but you've got to be able to move on from that. For sure. It's, it's funny how different people process things in different ways. Like I, I would say that for him and correct me if you think differently here, I'd say that for him, that statement is his way of accepting it. Oh, most definitely. It is his way of accepting it and making sure he doesn't forget about all the other good things around um, his life. You know, he's, he's there. I, I could have been a real arsehole, but be, being so self-important, um, but it brought him back down to life, uh, but, but, but to a basic understanding of what people are about. And then he, again, he's really fortunate. He's got a fa fantastic family all around him mm. and he deserves it because he's a, he's a lovely bloke. How, how has it been looking over at the U S cause it seems like the U S is always miles ahead of where we are here in Australia. Has there been some frustration that, because, you know, even for example, there's a tablet that I take, which has been, um, PBS listed in the last year, it's called Trikafta. It's been a life-changing drug for 50% of the CF community. So much so that symptoms, some symptoms for patients have completely gone. Like yeah, their life fantastic. has fully changed. And as a country, we fought to get it on the PBS system for two or so years with a couple of close misses until we finally got it done around a year ago. But we were watching the US and the UK who were, you know, three years ahead of us. And we're seeing these really positive results. And it was really hard to see the Australian um, pharmaceutical board not take, I guess, the research and, you know, the real solid proof that we had that this drug was effective from overseas on board and get it granted here. Has there been similar frustrations for you looking 
across the ditch? Uh, not so much because we've got really qualified researchers here. We just need to make sure that they've got the right support around them to make a difference. Mm. Um, and like back when I was first diagnosed 14 years ago, it was just at the stage where a lot of things failed in research and everyone was really downbeat. You know, stem cells had failed, growth factors had failed, and everyone was kicking the can. Um, but um, then things started to change with more research being done. Um, and nowadays, we've never seen so much opportunity to find ways to slow stop and cure Parkinson's coming through. It's not easy by any means, but there's you know, multiple shots on goal now that we've got uh, across the world. So what's the the goal of Shake It Up is essentially to find a cure. But what does that look like? What does the process of year by year look like to get closer to that? Yeah, look, it started off to slow stop and and, and, and cure Parkinson's, but we've put another word in front of that, that's prevent. Uh, because if we can, Parkinson's as a disease, if we can find it before you have the physical uh, attributes of you know, tremor and rigidity, that's the normal uh, things that people get diagnosed on, we find it earlier and slow it down, people won't ever have Parkinson's come into their lives. So that's not going to help me and it's not going to help others that have got Parkinson's in more mature stages, but it's a way we can stop it going, coming into people's lives. But if we can hold people where they are, everyone that I talk to, and myself included, uh, is quite comfortable. If we could hold me where I am and not get worse, that's a fantastic opportunity. For sure. You talk about finding it. What are the signs of Parkinson's before the the real physical um, symptoms in terms of the shaking and and that sort of yeah. thing? Is it imaging that picks that stuff up, or um, there's a couple of key areas. There's loss of smell. Um, people, I haven't lost my sense of smell, but quite a, a good portion of people with Parkinson's lose their sense of smell. Um, REM sleep disorder, where you're living out your dreams. Uh, when you go to sleep at night and you think you're in a fight and you are kicking out and kicking and punching. Um, those sort of areas are, are, are high prevalence that people go on to get Parkinson's. Um, yeah, wow. So, but if we can find those things early and then have people more aware of them and especially doctors and um, are more aware that they're a precursor, if then we can find ways to slow and st slow the disease down, we've got something to deal with. So our Fox Foundation and ourselves were instrumental in looking for a marker, a biomarker, because there's no biomarker to test for Parkinson's until only three months ago. Um, and now we've got a biomarker that we can test for people with Parkinson's going forward. It is a spinal tap, so it's not an easy thing to get because we need to get CSF fluid. But we're working on how to get that into bloods and other serums to be able to make it an easier test to do to find out if people have got a precursor for Parkinson's. For sure. It seems like the spinal tap unlocks a lot of the, the biomarkers or the answers to some very tricky diseases and issues to solve. Oh, mate, the brain's such a complex piece of kit. Um, and then we realize how much you don't know about the brain. Um, mm. uh, and to be able to get it, you can image the brain to a certain degree, but spinal fluid has got a, a direct, opportunity to be able to understand what's happening in the brain especially in alpha synuclein which is one of the, the proteins that's in majority of people with parkinson's yeah wow it's made it so complex and it's i guess we know so much about the body but the brain is that one thing that we really struggle to get a grasp on everything that's happening there oh mate it's such an impressive piece of 
kit. You know, like in engineering world, we looked at how we do things smart and with processing and but people make decisions in so many different ways and coordinated decisions. It's just amazing at what the brain is capable of being able to do. Can I ask you, like with Parkinson's, is it, so it's like, is it stopping the messaging from the brain to the body? Yeah, it's a loss of dopamine, the dopamine producing cells. So when the substantia nigra starts to have cell death, you lose some of the dopamine production. And the dopamine production is a communication between the nervous system and the body. So for why we get the you know, shaking and things like that is because the, the brain doesn't know whether the muscle should expand or contract, and it, then it tremors. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a loss of dopamine, but it's much more than that, I suppose, uh, as a disease. You know, there's so many other symptoms uh, that are real issues to people, not, not only having um, the tremor. This might sound like a silly question, and it could be just an outrageously dumb question. I, I wouldn't say I'm the smartest tool in the shed, Clyde, so bear with me here. But <laughs> bear with me here. But when you speak about it affecting the dopamine, how does that then affect, you know, those other things that we get from the release of dopamine, like general happiness, that spike in, in good mood and energy and the kind of things that, you know, because there's a lot of activities every day that I go out and do because I know that they're dopamine inducing and they're going to make me feel good exercise being one of them, you know, having a good conversation, connecting with someone, a coffee, those sort of things that for me, give me that little hit of dopamine at the start of the day. Does that then affect the way that you experience those things? It does. You know, one of the side effect or effects of Parkinson's is you get a, like a steely face, you know, uh, that you're not smiling and things such as that. Uh, and, and my kids give me a, take the piss out of me all the time about I over smile and I probably do because I, I, I try and make sure I don't lose that opportunity to, to interface with people um, but yeah the face changes given time and that's part of the dopamine loss that that, that contributes to that yeah it's interesting I think mate I, I don't know that there's such thing as smiling too much so I'm going to give you a pass there <laughs> mate, it, I think it's just like I always say that smile is just a gateway to someone's soul if it you is. get a good smile out of someone, you know they're a good human. Yeah. No, mate, it is. It's a lot easier to smile and cry, mate, so we just need to get on with it. <laughs> I like it. I like it. When you talk about the brain, you know, you've spoken here a number of times about the fact that you have an engineering background. And obviously to do your job and to do it well and to be in the space of robotics, AI, which is a very in-depth field that inquires a level of intelligence and a level of smarts, did it worry you that you were going to lose the ability to do what you love and to work within the company that you founded? Uh, it didn't worry me as such. I'd, I'd spend very little of my time worrying about things um, as I find that most things don't happen. A greater percentage of them don't happen than what you could actually have affected. Uh, you might as well spend your time on working on that. Um, but yes, it definitely did. When I was di first diagnosed and I told the family, obviously, first, but then I, there was optional to tell other people outside, and I'm just a great believer of share it. And so I went and told people at work, and the first thing they thought of was Clyde's not going to be here anymore. Mm. I said, no, I'm definitely going to hang in as long as I possibly can because uh, I love what we do engineering-wise. I love what we do as a team. And um, and that's really important to us. Um, but we've got a great team of people um, on board with what we're doing in intelligent robotics at this point in time. 
So you started, correct me if I'm wrong here, but that company, Intelligent Robotics, was one of, if maybe not the first, robotics companies in Australia. Yeah, it was actually called Machinery Automation and Robotics back oh, too long ago, probably 30 years ago. And um, uh, we started business and I saw the emergence of computing um, and thought it was our Commodore 64K, um, the really early day stuff. Um, so thought, what if we could bring that into industry? Um, and then we started to work more closely with you know, sensing systems and PLC, programmable logic controllers, and that led into motion control, and that led into vision systems. And then we put it together as a whole solution with robotic arms to be able to do the work. Uh, and it's been a, an evolution of technology, I suppose. Um, AI has been something that we've been working on for the last probably five years. Uh, in earnest, but what AI can do for us today is just so special. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, right? Because you obviously, AI is a hot topic right now, right? It's such a hot topic. And I I don't know that much about it, but I will say I listened to an interview with Mo Gordon, who former CEO of Google X, and he wrote a book called Scary Smart, speaking about AI, the future impact it could have. And I listened to his episode on the Diary of a CEO, which is quite a big podcast. It's, you know, gets quite a global audience. And I listened to that episode and I thought the message of it was that if we as humans choose to do the right thing with this technology, it could be marvelous for us. It will be marvelous for us. However, if we choose to take this down the wrong path, it could be very destructive. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the topic. Yeah, most definitely, and that's a hundred percent right. Is it, AI can add, can add, and will add, whether we like it or not. It's going to be involved in a whole lot of different parts of our lives. Um, you know, from our simple Siri on a phone uh, that we all use on a daily basis um, to a lot more advanced things that AI can do. Um, but it, I suppose I compare it to the early days emergence emergence of computing, and people saying, "Oh, it's going to take everyone's jobs," and it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a, a disaster. Uh, but computing was a massive change for us. And we, we, what, what, where would we be today if we didn't have the computing power that we do? AI is in the same sort of explosion, but it's so much more powerful than the computing that we were dealing with back you know, 30 odd years ago. Um, but the opportunities to turn it into good uh, is enormous. You know, in our research of how to take big data sets and to be able to understand that quickly and accurately as to where there's missing parts or duplications or whatever it might be, that's just too hard to do in normal computing land. Mm. But AI can make a massive difference in those areas. Essentially, as I gather it at the moment, it seems like AI is at a stage in which it has almost a great memory. It's very good at remembering things that it it's able to observe or the information that's input into systems. It remembers it well. And it can regurgitate that information, but it's not close to, or maybe never will be in our lifetime, close to having a, a human level of consciousness. Yeah, look, machine learning is a subset of AI, uh, of artificial intelligence. Um, and that machine learning is critically important to us. You know, we're doing work, say, in the red meat industry at the moment, where we bring a side of beef in. Previously, they would have had operators there with like circular saws, putting the primal cuts in the carcass. 
which is really dangerous jobs a circular saw in a person's hand and you're trying to get the cut in the right location um, if you put it in the right location at the right depth at the right angle it's worth a lot of money because you shift the yield to a higher value and get better utilization of that 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 carcass of, of, of beef um, but nowadays we bring it in we do a three-dimensional image of the carcass um, run it through artificial intelligence and then the AI tells us where to put the cuts in uh, where previously we would have had to do it all by x-ray look under subsurface uh, conditions um, yeah a whole lot of lead lined rooms massive technology massive cost massive footprint and AI has simplified a whole lot of those things for us it's wild isn't it just what what it will open up the world to i've been listening to i listened to it a couple of years ago but i re-listened to it the other day a gentleman by the name in the val ravikant i'm not sure if you've ever heard of him or listened to him speak but he's quite an intelligent guy as a tech um founder and investor over in silicon valley and he was on an episode of joe rogan and i listened to him talking about ai and robotics and the future and he spoke about what he's really excited for is the fact that automation will take a lot of those jobs in which um, then creates new jobs for human beings to be more creative, to do the oh, work. Much that... so. Yeah, it gives people more pleasurable jobs to be able to do. As um, yeah, industry struggles to find enough people to be able to work in mundane tasks. Whereas mm. if we can make that task a, a more interesting task to be able to do, PC related or yeah, because a lot of things we need a human to be able to drive the robot uh, and, and make better decisions, uh, but it's got more force and can be able to do it 24 hours a day, whereas a person's going to get tired um, sure. in what they're doing. And, and it creates you know, op opportunities to injure people in certain areas, you know, things like carrying cartons around and things like that. It's, you know, it's, an, uh, it's an opportunity to hurt people with, with their back and so on, where a robot will do that really robustly. I find it interesting, the conversation around whether AI will be able to understand and act emotionally as humans do. Like I was hearing in the episode with um, Mo Gordon, they spoke about how in the future, there could be the potential that you basically, if, if you're a man who's looking for a partner and you've just found the real life women all too challenging, that you could have a robot wife who... <laughs> cleans the house, does the chores, um, is then able to emotionally care for you and respond to you when you feel like you need that emotional support or a shoulder to lean on or cry on. And they said it all sounds a little bit too good to be true. But I had this very interesting question. I'm not sure whether you believe that's possible at all. But I have to say, I had this really interesting question that popped to the front of my mind by where I thought, essentially emotions and feelings and that level of human consciousness that makes us all unique but all able to relate as human beings i thought if if robots or ai can learn that if if it can get to a point in which they are like human beings that's quite an interesting thought however emotions can often be the downfall of us as humans as well because where a lot of emotion lies sometimes not a lot of logic does and so I wonder if that that idea that one day AI could have a sense of human emotion, whether that would compromise the intelligence of the machines. Yeah, or does it actually give the human more feedback um, to be able to make better decisions with themselves? Um, mm. So maybe the AI, you know, giving different scenarios as to 
what decisions could be made that may be outside the person's initial thought pattern um, is where I see it to, to add a lot of value. Yeah, I, uh, machines not going to have the capability to make emotional decisions uh, and take in so many different sensory things that a human can do. Look, maybe it can get there in time to come, but the human's got so many different senses it looks at and takes in at that point in time to make make the decision that they do to interact. Where do you see it going in the next five to ten years? Like, where do you think the the tipping point in ten years is? Where, or, or not the tipping point wouldn't be the right word, but rather, what's like the top of you see this getting to in the next ten years? Like, what will it really help us do that? we're struggling with as a society right now? Yeah, look, it's going to be continuous change and, and there's massive amounts of change. You, you, you don't have to look far back. You know, 20 years uh, is not far ago and we didn't have mobile phones. Um, we didn't have the ability to be able to, like I've got my kids travelling uh, overseas for finishing off the uni and, you know, it's a FaceTime call mm. uh, you know, on a regular basis that you know, every day we you know, do a quick FaceTime, quick catch up. And just having that picture in front of you uh, makes it so much more pleasurable, I suppose, and keeps you in so, so much more contact with stuff that we didn't have. But then going further forward to, from that as to how do you interact with um, you know, glasses and uh, do we need a phone in the future or is it going to be more wearable devices that you actually use um, that can assist the person? Like, uh, you know, I, I don't have a wallet anymore. Um, I've run off a watch and I pay everything by a tap on a watch. Um, yeah, it wasn't that long ago you had to have coins and, and notes and so on. Um, we just don't need it anymore. Isn't it crazy how, you know, if you look back 20 years, we've come a long way, but particularly it feels like that tech space over the last five years has just gone to new levels. It seems that the more intelligent we get, the quicker we make progress moving forward. And oh, it is. It's massive amounts of change. And uh, uh, that change is a pretty scary thing for a lot of people, but it's, it also brings a lot of opportunity if we use it for the right things. Do you see the AI robotic space having any impact on people with Parkinson's in a positive way? Like, oh, most you, definitely. I'd definitely. be interested to hear like where you think the crossover is for you being in both of those spaces and working quite actively there. Yeah, and just how did we measure things in Parkinson's? Um, how, how we at the moment you go into the doctor and uh, or, or neurologist to, to be able to get an assessment, and he gets a look at you or she gets a look at you at one point in time. Whereas if you actually had cameras looking at you elsewhere and could give better scores as to how well you're performing or wearable devices that can actually tell you when you're actually in tremor mode or when you're in dyskinesia mode, um, when you're taking your medications, um, all those areas that can prompt people to make a, a better quality of life. For sure. I think for me, that's been one of the biggest things is I feel like the health space and the tech that we have for health now has made people who maybe previously weren't very aware of their health, it's made them take particular notice. Yeah, and you can measure it a lot more if you want to. I, I, I love measuring the stuff that I do as far as how much I sleep, how much I exercise, what heart rates I run, um, you know, how many steps you do a day. What do you like, wear? What's your wearable? Uh, I, use, I use an Apple Watch. Interesting. I've been on the Whoop train. 
Oh yeah. The last six months. I love it, mate. I can't like, I fuss over the stats. <laughs> it's made me like I'm 27 and I feel like I'm getting to this. God, this sounds like such a whinger thing to say, but I feel like I'm getting to that stage now where if I don't sleep well, I notice the impact. And this thing yeah. has made me so conscious of my sleep. Yeah. And sleep's one of the areas that's important to us all. Yeah. It, it gives the brain an opportunity to be able to clear away the, the, the dead cells and so on in the brain. And it's one of the key areas I think for people is to make sure they do get enough sleep. Um, yeah. The two things that have affected my or improved myself most is get better sleep uh, and prioritize sleep where in the past it was easy to cut back sleep to get more time to do other things that you need to do. And exercise is the other one that's definitely key to for myself. Um, yeah, I, I do an hour every day and I get up and I go and do the gym or run or paddleboard or something for an hour. Um, it, most days I do that unless I'm traveling or something like that, that I, I, I need to get on a plane and I can't do it. But uh, I prioritize the, my, my sleep and, and, and my exercise to get the best out of my body. I feel like you'd be a pretty routine character. <laughs> yes, that's what my wife says. I'm a creature of habit. Yeah, I reckon it's the best way to be, though. Yeah, look, it's, it's everyone. You've got to have that change, and that's why AI is. We don't. You can't have everyone the same. Um, mm. Otherwise, it, the world would be a pretty boring spot. <laughs> True. I, I think I tend to think that for me personally, I respond really well to routine. Like I like to be up in the morning, early, out running or moving in the gym, doing something, having a coffee, jumping in the ocean little bit of connection like i thrive off the back of a routine yeah mate like i, I love mornings i get out of bed and bump bump uh, jump out of bed and go have a good day yeah. and uh and those sort of things is just natural to me um mm. where some other people in my family would be getting up to get out of bed and they'd, they'd rather not have that high level of in, intensity <laughs> there is they'd like to warm into their day I remember my little sister, she's two and a half years younger than I am. We haven't lived together for a long time. We're still very close, but she always used to say to me that she hated how energetic I was of a morning. <laughs> she didn't want to talk until she'd had brekkie and had a bit of time to process the fact that she was awake. And I'm just the minute I'm up, I'm all, all systems go. Yeah. It's, we've got a dog and, uh, he loves to come for a run and, and so on with us. And, uh, he just gets up every day and every every day is just a good day for Zed the dog. What type of dog do you have? He's a Springer Spaniel Poodle. Um, so, There's a little collection of things going on in there. <laughs> yeah, oh, mate, he's a wonderful, wonderful little fella. He just, uh, every day he's just so positive. He's uh, he's going to grow up one day. He's 12 years old and he still acts like a pup <laughs> most of the time. Mate, I, I reckon there's something about dogs that are almost like human necessity at some point in your life. What they do for you in terms of the perspective that dogs have towards living every day to the fullest and being happy and never being mad, they don't hold a grudge. I reckon humans can learn a lot from dogs. Oh, mate, they came from animals in, in general and that uh, uh, yeah, dogs are a wonderful uh, companion in many different ways. Yeah, they definitely teach our kids a lot about loving and caring and sharing. Um, yeah, no, it's been an important part for, for our family. Talk to me, mate, about obviously when you get diagnosed with something like Parkinson's, you know that things in your life are going to change. 
I wonder, does your perspective change at that point in your life? I know that you're a positive character and you spoke about accepting it and moving forward and deciding to do something about it. But I wonder, does it change plans for the future? Does it change the way that you think about what you want out of life, the way that you want to live your life? Because I know as a society, and I can't speak for everyone, but I know that for a good chunk of us, we tend to prioritize work and work that isn't so meaningful to us a little bit too much. We don't spend as much time with the people that we love and we know we should. We tend to find that people get to, you know, and I've heard about this incredible book, The Five Regrets of the Dying, written by an Australian nurse that a lot of people get to the end of their life and have a lot of regrets on the way that they live their life. A lot of regrets on the fact that they focus more on material items and, you know, working a job that didn't provide them with so much meaning and, you know, spending time doing things that didn't fill their heart or their soul or that sense of purpose. I wonder how your thoughts on all of those things changed in that moment. Yeah, didn't probably change in that moment, but it's been changed as a focus and reminds you that there's just far more important things to get out of life and make sure you take time to make those things happen. Um, just spending time with the kids and the family. Um, you know, we enjoy a holiday. We, we enjoy our holidays together. Um, yeah, just to make sure we take the time to be able to do those special things. And it doesn't have to be for a long time, um, but making sure you do it on a regular basis. What have been some of those moments that you've actually gone and cherished and made the most of? Oh, look, when uh, I travel overseas, it's quite often one of the kids will come with me. Um, um, Zoe's just finished off um, six months in the States and I was over that way for a week and dropped in and we caught up for a week. Um, and then I was back in Europe and she'd come over to Europe and, and she was meant to come back home, but she decided she'd spend a week with me in Europe. And then just hang out with her mates probably that way for another month and she'll be back in another week's time. But, um, yeah, there's just opportunity, I suppose, that we take and make sure we, we pick up as best we can. I love that. I think that sense of adventure, like I, I read something about a month or two ago now and I thought it really summed up the human experience. It spoke about the fact that it's not obvious that all we want as humans is just happiness and joy and it's not even obvious that we want a complete absence of misery but rather that we want an adventure that makes the misery and the challenge and the adversity all worthwhile and I think about yeah, you, that yeah you can't change everything that's going to happen to you but can change what everything means to you and there's a big difference so if you can change what it means to you like you everyone's going to go through hardship uh, I'm a great believer you've got to build resilience in people uh, because we we spend too much time stopping things happening. I, I, I don't want to ever see my kids get hurt or anything like that, but I'm a great believer if they, you, you can see things that are going to happen and you go, oh, I'm probably better off just letting that thing happen and be there to be able to pick up the pieces because learning experiences that nothing beats actually doing it yourself. Uh, I'm a big believer in that, Clyde, such a big believer. I think that because we're all told things, right? We're all told things as we move through life and we're, we have lessons passed down from those who are older than us or who have worked, walked past before we're about to walk that path. And they say, don't do this or be ready for this. Or, you know, when this opportunity comes up, you make sure you think about this. But I think as humans, we have this need to experience it firsthand ourselves. Oh, and mate, nothing, nothing burns <laughs> more than actually doing it yourself. 
Uh, 100%. And, and you learn and you you take that on board far greater than actually someone telling you what you should or shouldn't do. Mm. Um, but yeah, you never want to see anyone get hurt or anything such as that, but whether that be emotionally or physically. Um, but yeah, sometimes you just need to make your own mistakes to be able to learn from them. What have been some of the hardest lessons for you to learn over the course of your lifetime? Uh, I think it's continuous learning for myself. Um, um, yeah, making sure you're considerate of other people uh, is a key one for myself. Um, if you can make a life better for other people, good things happen in the, in, in the, on the roundabout. So, you, sorry, I cut you off there, mate. Carry on. Yeah, not time to take so much out of the, the relationship, but how do you add back to the relationship and then it comes back to you on the roundabout. I wonder, have you had much of an experience with other people who have Parkinson's or have had um, a personal family member or friend who's, you know, had a difficulty with Parkinson's that you've been able to help through, shake it up? Oh, yeah, quite regularly. Um, as you know, I'm more than comfortable to talk to Parkinson's groups and, and just to share the story because um, yeah, it's not a perfect world. You know, I show yeah, images and say, look, you don't, you, not every day is a perfect day. Um, but most of it's not a bad day, it's bad hours in, in, a, in a day. Um, I was going for a run um, with the dog and I uh, had a pair of sunglasses on, running along a bush track and uh, I went to a shady area and I didn't see a step as well. And I, my foot just clipped it and I'd gone, oh man, lift it up. I couldn't lift it up. And so I stepped, went and put my arm out and the dog, dog's lead was attached to my arms. <laughs> and I said, I'm going to do a roll. So I had a halfway through a roll, which was the head plant into the ground. And then I took a whole lot of skin off the top of the head and knocked a few more hair follicles out that I desperately need. Um, and uh, got up and went, man, that didn't feel real good. <laughs> uh, I had to take a picture of it because there was a bit of blood coming out of the head. So they need to get a picture. And uh, I, show, I show that quite often when I go up to speak and say, look, it's a learning experience. You know, I don't run with sunnies on now um, because I... I Get to that get to a shaded place and I can't quite see it as well as what I did in the past. Mate, yeah. I, well, I just love your perspective. I just I can't help but notice that every time you talk about one of the challenges, you do it with a real smile and you just have this incredible perspective that I hope people are taking note of that as they're listening. Like I I would like to think I'm a pretty positive and upbeat character, but it's always really nice to talk to someone who really exudes that in every area of their life. And I'm sure you have your challenges and your tough days, but may you, you just put a big smile on your face and, and, and it puts a smile on my face here and those things and, and seeing it. Oh, look, mate, everyone's going to have tough days and those things you need to be able to, some, some things you can't do anything about where you, you lose someone you know, close to you. you know, just lost a mate um, in, a, in a boating accident in, a, in Sydney. And he's such a genuinely nice guy, but he's just, he pushed life to the limits and unfortunately he, he um, he's passed away but mate there's just so, there's so many special people like that you get you get you find in your life's journey that you can make the uh, the best of 100 percent, and that's all we can do right you know i i've spoken about it in depth that for people with cystic fibrosis there's a life expectancy of around 40 years of age and a lot of people ask me, I do a bit of keynote speaking and, you know, jump on a lot of these conversations and people often ask me how I feel about that or how that makes me feel. And I had a realization a couple of years ago, Clyde, that 
life expectancy is such a myth because no one's guaranteed any time on right. this planet, you know? So you can say that the average person lives to 80, but nobody's guaranteed that you don't get a slip at the beginning of your life. that says you've got a ticket for the next 80 years. Enjoy it. You know, we have to go out and live every day and, and ensure that we have a sense of meaning that we're doing things for the right reasons, that our actions are aligned with our values, that we're showing up in the world in a way that allows us to feel as though the adventure means something to us, that there's enjoyable moments, there's moments that challenge us. And, and I love to see that in other people too. It's what really, for me, fuels the passion behind hosting a podcast, to be able to chat to like-minded individuals or maybe individuals who share different mindsets but hear about how they show up in their life. Yeah, look, it's no guarantee, as you said. Um, things could stop very, very quickly. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I had a brother that had a brain aneurysm there two and a half years ago, and that was a, just a massive bolt from the blue. Um, you know, he um, had a bleed on the brain. Um, we were fortunate to get into the right medical care, um, but it's been two and a half years worth of uh, really hard rehab to go through from not being able to know what a glass was, you know, knife and fork, uh, didn't know the kids' names. When he first saw me, he said, where's Clyde? Because we had a really strong relationship together. Mm. Um, and uh, I said, mate, I'm here. He said, yeah, but where's Clyde? Um, so he just didn't recognise me. Uh, yeah, didn't know how to turn a computer on. I said, how do I turn, turn it on? Now he's been able to send emails, do share trading, you know, can speak, can get, get up and do what he needs to do. There's still a challenge of getting information from the brain to the mouth, um, but it's a pretty small price to pay considering what could have happened. Yeah, it's it's so true, isn't it? And it's I think it makes you it makes you realise when you have those experiences, and and I and I hate to say it, but unfortunately, a lot of people don't realise it until that experience has happened to them personally or someone that they love. Yeah. That it makes you really think about the fragility of life and. I live in Wollongong here and my partner and I, Sofa, are in this apartment on the third floor and directly below us, my nan and pop live in the identical apartment. Cool. And so I go down and see them quite often. And, and pop's 87 now. He had a stroke a couple of years ago and, and he was previously very quick-witted, very funny, very smart, very intelligent. And he's still all of those things, but now he struggles to express it, to communicate yeah. it. Yep. And I can see the real frustration on his face when I go down to see him and he wants to tell me a story or he wants to talk to me about what's happening in my life. And they take real joy from hearing about all the adventures that Soph and I are on and what we're doing in our life. And, and that for them just makes their week. And I really feel for him because I wish I could just help him communicate that, you know, but it reminds me all the time that I've got to go down there. I've got to spend that time. I've got to, be patient and enjoy those moments with them because we're all getting older. Now that sounds yeah. funny coming from a 27 year old, but we're all, <laughs> we're all moving in that direction. We don't know what's ahead of us. Yeah. And those old later years are tough years. Yeah. My mum and dad are getting into their eighties now and uh, yeah, things that were easily done just aren't anymore. Um, yeah. Mum had to go into a home because it was just, a, she couldn't be looked after at home safely. Um, and yeah, they're, they're really challenging things to go through but yeah it's the harsh reality of life mate it most definitely is but you're showing up in a very positive way and just do, doing some incredible things as we sort of close off this conversation I, I would love to know how as the aussie public and the listeners of the pod and the people who 
want to get behind people like yourself who are doing things to really make great change and, and make great impact in the world. How can we support the Shake It Up Australia mission? How can we get behind you? Yeah, there's a whole lot of different ways you can do it. If you go to our website at shakeitup.org.au, um, there's ways you can do, you know, morning tea, a golf day. Um, there's a whole lot of different things. We have events, running events, um, and it's a matter of how do we actually assist people doing those events, do, do it by themselves, and uh, we, we'll set up the, the IT and some structure behind it. Mm. Um, so there's a whole numerous ways of all getting involved in trials, medical trials, knowing what's coming up uh, as a patient or as a, a control person that doesn't have the disease. There's a whole lot of different ways you can get involved. You go to our website and you'll learn a whole lot more. Mate, I'll make sure that that website's in the description and the show notes for today's episode. I want to give you an opportunity before we close it off, just to give one final message to the audience and, and send them off on a high. Yeah, look, life's a challenge in many different ways. Um, but if you can make the best of it, the cards that you've been dealt, and I think it's just important to be able to suck it in, have a good think about what life you, you want to live. And how do you make a difference on a day-by-day -day basis? It's really important, I think, for, for you and your people around you. Mate, beautiful words. It's been an absolute pleasure to have a conversation. I'll make sure that every way everyone can get in contact with you is in the show notes. I really appreciate your time. Mate, thank you for your time. It's been, been a pleasure to catch up and like look forward to doing it again. Cheers, Clyde. I appreciate it, mate. Thanks, Brad. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of A Lot To Talk About. It means the world that you guys are in my corner, that you continue to listen to the show every week. And if you could do me a massive favor by following the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it and sharing this episode in particular with just one friend that you feel would benefit from it, that would mean the world to me and it would help the show grow. The more the show grows, the bigger the guests we get on, the more that we can do and the more we can share and support you guys, the listeners, the viewers of the show. Before I go, I want to pay my respects and recognise the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and record this podcast. The Aboriginal culture has such a rich history in storytelling and as a passionate storyteller, I really hope that the stories we share and connect with on the show can allow the many cultures that now call this beautiful land Australia their home to come together and continue to respect the stories and the culture that make this the land it is today. Thank you so much for tuning into A Lot To Talk About. I'll catch you next week.